The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guests today are Paul Rogers and David Brophy. We talked about AUKUS, the new security pact between Australia, the United States and the United Kingdom. We spoke about the significance of Australia acquiring nuclear-powered submarines through the deal, the fallout from the cancellation of Australia's prior deal with France that would have seen the Australian Navy receive 12 new diesel-powered submarines, And finally, we discussed how the deal will be perceived in Beijing amid rising tensions between the US and China. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Northern Question by Tom Hazeldean. Britain has scarcely begun to come to terms with its recent upheavals, from the crisis over Brexit to the collapse of Labour's Red Wall. What can explain such momentous shifts? In The Northern Question, Tom Hazeldean excavates the history of a divided country. North and South, Industry versus Finance, Whitehall and the Left Behind. The Northern Question, a history of a divided country by Tom Hazeldean, described by Lindsay Hanley as an expansive account of the North-South divide, is now out in paperback from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Paul Rogers is Emeritus Professor in the Department of Peace Studies at Bradford University. He's Open Democracy's International Security Advisor, and his latest book is the revised fourth edition of Losing Control, Global Security in the 21st Century, which is out now from Pluto Press. My second guest is David Brophy, who is Senior Lecturer in Modern Chinese History in the Department of History at Sydney University, and the author of Uyghur Nation, Reform and Revolution on the Russia-China Frontier. His most recent book is China Panic, Australia's alternative to paranoia and pandering. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So, Paul, we're speaking today because of this new defence alliance that has been announced between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, the most significant aspect of which is that the US and the UK will assist Australia in developing a class of nuclear-powered submarines that will replace their existing diesel-powered fleet. And, of course, this is the first time that the US has shared nuclear propulsion technology with an ally other than the UK, uh, an alliance in that case going back to the 1950s, The Defence Alliance is also said to involve the deepening of security ties and and assistance between the three nations in the the Indo-Pacific region, with obviously China as as the target, even if that's not been announced. So, Paul, if we start with you, could you say something on the nature of this this new alliance and and whether the significance it's being accorded in the media is warranted in your view? It is, I think, probably warranted, at least... uh... The British in particular do need to play this up. It's very much a part of the need to be seen as playing a global role. It's the same reason that we have this aircraft carrier strike group 
over in the Western Pacific, just leaving Japan, I think, today or yesterday. Uh, and this is on a sort of a multi-month of deployment to show that Britain is a significant power east of Suez. And one has to remember that, in fact, it's, what, 50... Five years, I think, ago that Harold Wilson, the then Labour Prime Minister in 1966, announced that Britain was basically giving up east of Suez. Now, that has really been changed recently by the Johnson government. And we have obviously it started with the involvement in the in the Gulf Wars. We do have a small permanent base in Bahrain and we have a large new base at Dukum, which we will share with the Americans. This is in Oman outside of the Gulf, incidentally. So for the British, it's very much part of portraying themselves as a global power. And now Britain isn't a global power, but at least if you do this kind of thing and link in with the United States, then you're on a little bit of a winner. So from the British perspective, it's fairly clear. Uh, As far as the wider issue is concerned, um, the main technical change is that it will provide Australia with a a flotilla uh, of submarines which will have very long range, uh, which is what nuclear power gives. And essentially that allows them to range well out into the Indian Ocean, uh, right up into the South China Seas and into the West Pacific. In fact, if need be to go around the world. So to that extent, it increases Australia's capability to be part of what is clearly becoming this wider group, this alliance, uh, which obviously does bring in the likes of uh, India and Japan, and to a smaller level, countries like um, Thailand, Philippines and the rest, in a sort of a counter to what is seen as Chinese aggression. So from that perspective, it is adding fuel to the fire in many ways, because as far as the Chinese are concerned, they see a world which is very different. But Biden seems to be pushing this. The other thing I think one has to understand is in the context of particularly the United States and Britain, Um, The arms industries, military industrial complexes, if you like, badly need a new enemy. It's been a pretty disastrous period. The 1990s were bad enough uh, with the loss of uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, the great enemy, and China not very big. At least the war on terror provided new markets, if you like, on a very large scale. But with that sort of apparently diminishing and with four failed wars... You know, Afghanistan, Iraq, the first Iraq war, the second war against ISIS and Libya, essentially the defense or rather the military industries needed something new. And this mm. is where so it's, it's not a time for, for selling or, or, or creating weaponry for uh, counterinsurgency. No, that is well, that's that's not gone because, I mean, counterinsurgency is going on. It's going to continue. But that is basically with a particular line of technologies, those which are appropriate to remote warfare. Mm. We see the remote warfare in operation in many countries right across the Sahel with drones and the rest, special forces, private militias, privatized military and all the rest. So that basically is more or less accounted is accounted for by existing Uh, defense contracts, military contracts. But what you really need is basically an ability to market the really big stuff. And this is where the the different military industrial complexes, what I think are rightly called the war promoting hydras, are going to have a ball, as indeed will the ones in China as well. And one tends to forget this. There are mirror images of this. There will be many people in the Chinese military industries who will be pretty delighted at what is happening. So, David, if I turn to you and, and the view from Australia, 
The deal has received the endorsement of the opposition Labour Party, which has confined its criticism of the government to the seemingly uh, quite chaotic procurement process that until very recently meant that the French were to build and deliver a new fleet of diesel-powered submarines. Beyond Canberra, uh, how has the deal landed more broadly in the country and how solid do you think that bipartisan support for the deal is? Well, I think if we're talking specifically in terms of the Labour Party, the bipartisan support for this is, is going to be strong. Uh, Labor prides itself on a, what they call a bipartisan compact on on national security, and they certainly don't want to be, you know, open up the opportunity for being wedged uh, in the uh, in the months leading up to the next election on an issue like this. The wider reception, though, has been um, well, it's been celebrated in the media and hyped considerably in predictable corners like the uh, the Murdoch press. There has been a, a certain amount of disquiet, though, expressed from various directions. Uh, on the one hand, you have you have a whole debate, of course, around the military procurement uh, dimension to this. There are people who think that for various logistical reasons or financial reasons or, or planning reasons that this is actually not the right decision, that Australia would have been better off sticking with the uh, the French contract, for example. You have, of course, the the standard dovish critique of Australia's posture uh, at this point in time, that it's it's putting all its eggs in the American basket, and and from that point of view, this this deal certainly is significant in um, very visibly doubling down on this support for a sustained U.S. presence I- in Asia. So that is, of course, being called into question. The nuclear dimension, uh, as well, is is an important element of this, and that is that is bringing in new voices to the debate surrounding U.S. China relations that, that haven't really had much of a presence in that discussion. Of course, on the one hand, you have environmentalist anti-nuclear campaigners who've come out quite strongly against this. And I think the nuclear angle has also uh, possibly stiffened the resolve of the Greens uh, as well, whose, um, whose leaders have put out pretty strong statements saying that they intend to, to fight uh, against AUKUS, that they, they oppose this. And then, of course, but on the other hand, you have, you know, quite a prominent set of voices in Australian politics have been lobbying for Australia to develop a nuclear industry uh, for some time. And they, of course, see this as an opportunity to uh, to push on that on that front, because one of the big questions in the air right now is how Australia is actually going to operate uh, nuclear submarines without its own nuclear uh, industry. There's no country in the world that, that does that uh, at this point in time. And obviously, the government uh, is saying that they have no intention to go down that road, but it's pretty easy to see how this crosses a threshold that's going to make it much easier for people to lobby that Australia needs nuclear capacity of its own. And then, of course, waiting in the wings, you have the whole debate around nuclear weapons. So that desire for nuclear capacity is in terms of uh, civilian technology, of perhaps developing nucle- uh, nuclear power stations and so on? Yeah, indeed. So Australia doesn't have nuclear power. It just has a single nuclear research, a nuclear science research uh, facility, but it, it, it has no nuclear power. I mean, it has um, it engages in uranium exports quite controversially recently, um, has um, been exporting uranium to countries that are not signatories to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. But I mean, Australia itself is a signatory to that treaty. You know, so one of the conditions that Labor has put on its support for this this move is that, that it doesn't involve any uh, any domestic shift to nuclear power. Um, 
I, I think I think one important thing to point out is that we, we just don't know very much yet as to what the, the details of this plan are going to look like. Really, all we have um, out of this so far is a commitment to launch a, a, a study group um, to investigate, you know, the best avenue to acquiring this nuclear technology for the, uh, the submarine fleet. But um, there's a huge amount of uh, debate to be had, I think. And I think the outcome will also depend to some extent on the, um, you know, discussions being had outside Australia in the um, United States and in the UK as to, um, as to how these things get built and, and what, uh, what these things actually look like in the end. Do you think also, um, is there a possibility that at some point down the line that the position shifts and, and indeed it looks like Australia will start to develop a, a nuclear power generation system, that that would then be sold in terms of climate, that this would be a solution to, to uh, reducing uh, Australia's carbon emissions? Yeah, that's certainly, um, I mean, it's already out there in the, in the press mm. uh, today, people pushing that, you know, why would we not go down that road? The, uh, you know, the jobs, the um, cheap energy, and yeah, and there's, there are sections of the environmental movement who are relatively open to the idea of a nuclear industry. Now, there's been quite significant campaigns, you know, in living memory against uh, uranium mining, against uh, nuclear waste dumping, often involving collaboration with indigenous peoples on the land where this, um, this nuclear waste is destined to end up, uh, things like that. There's been, you know, in terms of the last 50 years, those sorts of campaigns have been a relative high point of progressive politics in, in Australia. But it's it's been some time since we really had to thrash out these arguments in Australia about, about nuclear power. There are, you know, there are some unions who are, you know, quite strongly opposed to, to nuclear power. The um, Electrical Trades Union, for example, has been running a, uh, a campaign around this for, for some time. But, you know, you also have other other unions and other sections of the, uh, the the progressive wing of Australian politics that are that are pretty pro nuclear, you know, and, and unfortunately, when we're talking about the the peace movement or the anti nuclear movement or what have you, we, we're talking about forces that are um, at a relatively low ebb politically in their ability to mobilise people and um, and try to capture some of the unease that's going to be out there around this decision. So, Paul, at this stage, very little seems to be known about how this new fleet of nuclear submarines will be constructed. So it's, it's unclear whether uh, Australia will be purchasing submarines built in the UK or, or perhaps the United States, or whether Australia will be given the technology to build the submarines in Australia, which would obviously involve having control over um, the process of, of enriching uranium for the for the nuclear reactors, it's possible that the actual uh, class of submarines might be the British Astute class or the or the American Virginia class. What's your guess as to what's most likely in, to, in, in terms of how these these weapons will actually be delivered? Well, there are some indications that the submarines will be built in the shipyard at Adelaide. That's not clear yet. I think it's highly unlikely that they will be British. Uh, the British Astute Submarine Program has had incredible delays and problems. In fact, I gather there's a couple of hundred American technicians have had to be brought in to Rolls-Royce in Derby to actually try and rescue the project. Britain also has some problems with the nuclear reactors in our new SSBN, the Boomers, the submarine launch ballistic missile submarines. So I really frankly doubt that Britain will be the lead player. It's much more likely to be the United States. And if you're following the sort of the problems that Britain has, what it will mean is that Australia will be building them under pretty close to 
operation, I'll put it bluntly, under close American supervision with many American technicians working actually in Adelaide. That's the most likely development. Uh, obviously, Boris Johnson, for his own means, wants to promote this as being very much a British thing. Uh, we are basically, relatively speaking, the bit player in this regard. But it is also always worth remembering that there is already close cooperation between the United States, Britain, Australia, Canada, and to an extent New Zealand in the whole signal side. I mean, two of the world's This most is the five eyes and so on. The five eyes, yes. Two of the world's most important uh, signal stations outside of the United States are Menwith Hill uh, here in North in Yorkshire, just about 20 miles from Bradford, where I'm speaking from, and of course Pine Gap, which is in uh, in Australia. And essentially that latter one covers much of the Western Pacific. So there are these very close links already among the, the among the countries in the Five Eyes group. Um, as far as the Europeans are concerned, this is very much the Anglos going off and doing it on their own. And it has caused major problems because of the cancellation of the French program, which would have been diesel electric submarines, but of a fairly competent design, one might say. In response to, to the announcement of, of the alliance, Boris Johnson declared in Parliament that the deal does not violate the non-proliferation treaty, although the nuclear watchdog, the, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has said it will investigate the deal. In your view, does the deal violate the NPT, to which all three countries are, of course, uh, signatories? And obviously, uh, Boris Johnson was uh, arguing on the basis that although these are nuclear submarines, the plan at the moment is not for them to carry nuclear weapons. Well, it will be very interesting to see what the IAEA makes of this. Uh, technically, it appears that they're not in breach of the NPT. But one of the tricky things here is that the actual level of uranium enrichment you use for submarine nuclear reactors is very much higher than for civil power stations. There have been questions about whether you could even make a bomb directly out of it. And there was some work done on this in the United States 40, 50 years ago. But that's, in a sense, open to question. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see what the IAEA says. What you can say is that essentially, um, since you're dealing with very small, very powerful, potent reactors with high levels of, of uranium enrichment, uh, you're getting pretty close to breaking the spirit of the NPT, if not the literal of the law. But it'll be very interesting to see what the IAEA comes up with in that. Japan is often described as having nuclear breakout capability, the, the, uh, the ability to rapidly build nuclear weapons if it, if it so wants to, and obviously has a large nuclear power uh, generation system. So this would give Australia that kind of capability in your view? It would. I mean, the thing about Japan is that it has <clears throat> large numbers of nuclear reactors with lots of expertise in that area. It also has a space program which involves the construction of what are essentially long-range ballistic missiles. Uh, it would probably be able to fashion relatively crude nuclear devices in a matter of a few months. Couldn't be done overnight, but it would be possible to do that. China, Australia does not have that other capability at present. And all the indications are in the past. If you look back to you know, the, the Canberra process where the Australians were trying to lead the way uh, to proliferation control, uh, within the Australian political system, there is an element which is really strongly against nuclear proliferation. Now, I'm not up to date on current Australian political uh, changes, uh, and certainly the current government is much more to the right of, say, Whitlam all those years ago. But the point here about it is that this is a part of a process which will allow Australia 
access to new technologies, which are probably useful in terms of developing technical abilities, but it doesn't mean that Australia is then on the path to nuclear weapons. So, David, it's not so long ago when talk of a new Cold War with China was dismissed on the basis that the uh, American and Chinese economies were, were so deeply intertwined that it would be impossible for relations to deteriorate to the, to the point of actual conflict. And that logic seemed particularly stark in the case of, of, of Australia, since uh, China is the country's biggest trading partner, accounting for more than 40% of Australia's exports. What do you think might be the economic consequences of Australia deepening its security ties with the US and, and its allies? And how does this all play out in, in Canberra when it comes to squaring the circle of Australia's security ties with its uh, economic objectives? You're right. There's been a lot of speculation about this. But I think if people were of the view that the economic relationship between China and Australia would act as some sort of ballast or a break on the potential for tensions to escalate, I, I think that I think that the Australian case has, I think now we can say, you know, quite clearly shown that that it's not it's not really playing that role. Now, some some will argue that that you know the economic consequences for Australia have still not been that significant. That China's retaliation to Australia's uh, shift towards a, um, I mean, essentially Australia shifted around about 2017 towards a, a an effort to catalyze a, a U.S. led diplomatic. Uh, economic military pushback against against China. China took some time to um, to react to that. They did uh, then retaliate by um, launching various uh, anti-dumping investigations, that kind of thing. But they've been targeting quite boutique sections of the the trade relationship, seafood, wine, that kind of thing. And so, you know, iron ore, in fact, is still bringing in a huge amount of revenue for the uh, the government from sales to China, even though the iron ore price is is on its way down. And I think China has held back actually from, you know, trying to pull the trigger on something like iron ore, just I think because China fundamentally, its strategic analysis is that there is no fundamental conflict between Chinese and Australian interests. And I think, you know, I think it has always been hoping that at some point Australia would pull out from this um, this posture that it's been in and, and so hasn't really wanted to fundamentally collapse the relationship by, you know, trying to stop purchase, purchasing Australian um, resource export. But, but, but I, think, I think, you know, a move like AUKUS, whatever we say about the, the precise significance of it in, in military or strategic terms, I mean, it's clearly a, a signal from Australia that it wanted to, it wanted to say that we were crossing a line and we were locking into this strategy of confrontation in a way that we were were not previously and, yes, and, and the, the australian prime minister has described this as a, as a forever deal right indeed in, in, indeed and I, I think that that's going to certainly strengthen the hand of people inside china the more hardline position inside china are going to be arguing to to try to accelerate some sort of strategy to get away from buying australian iron ore and you know it, it, it sort of makes perfect sense from a chinese point of view i mean given that the Australian, you know, military budget is so so openly being aimed at spending, you know, spending big to um to take on China. Well, you know, why would China want to, um, you know, keep buying things from from Australia? So, I mean, that'll that'll play out shortly. We'll see what what comes of that. But I don't I don't think that, you know, I don't think that Australian capital is going to is going to sort of play some sort of it's coming from the wings and and 
tip the the direction of Australian policy at this at this particular point in time. I mean, there are specific voices, specific companies that are heavily invested in China and are relatively independent from Anglo-American capital. So they you know they can sort of act um, as a pro-China lobby uh, in Australia, but that's that's not the case for you know the vast bulk of the Australian stock exchange. We're, we're dominated by companies that are you know heavily US UK owned the i think the notion that australian capital has some sort of independent role to play in this um in this situation has actually been a little bit exaggerated i think it's been exaggerated in part for political purposes to try to you know to try to pin critics of this this more militaristic direction of policy as you know as acting on behalf of the interests of big business and so on you know we're all familiar with that that kind of rhetoric um, the actual fact is that big business in Australia is not not saying or doing very much at the moment. Another striking thing in this regard in terms of China's response and China's desire to, to seemingly keep things, at this stage at least, relatively open in terms of uh, trade relations was the request China made just hours after the announcement of, of the AUKUS deal when China formally asked to join the Comprehensive and Progressive uh, Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, a very long name for the successor for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, which of course, Donald Trump withdrew the United States from and and, and was then uh, sort of spearheaded by Australia and and Japan. What's been the reaction to uh, China's request? And and, and do you think there's any likelihood of of that request being uh, acceded to? Uh, look, it's it's only something that's been in the news today, but I did see a response from the, uh, the Australian Trade Minister, essentially saying, you know, China wants to negotiate on something like this. Then, um, then why haven't they been um, responding to my letters calling for, um, you know, Australia? Australia has from time to time tried to, um, you know, tried to revive ministerial uh, talks with the Trade Minister and uh, and, and so on and. and China's essentially been snubbing, uh, snubbing Australia on that. If it's down to Australia, then I don't think we would expect China to be joining TPP anytime soon. But it, you know, it, it's, it's going to, I think, exacerbate this, this, this curious reality that we're living with at, at the moment that on the one hand, you know, so much of the rhetoric coming out of the US and Australia is around this idea of, you know, maintaining the um, the institutions of the you know the post-war international order uh, that China is um, somehow threatening, but the fact is, you know, China is much more of a of a of a defender internationally of the the multilateral uh, trading system than than a country like the United States, um, for 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 example. So, I mean, it's certainly going to I think have a certain propaganda value as a gesture from China, because China is essentially saying, well, you want us to play by the rules? Well, okay, we'll sign up to these rules. You know, from a trade point of view, I mean, the rules actually are quite stringent, um, more more so in certain certain fields that um, the West has been complaining about, uh, more stringent than anything China has signed up to um, so far. So, Paul, the deal, of course, is, has been described as a, as a response to Chinese expansionism in, in the South China Sea and, and, um, uh, and, and in response to Chinese aggression towards uh, Taiwan. Um, what do you make of those, uh, those claims? Well, one has to look at it uh, in terms of analysing where China is coming from and also look at it from China's point of view. 
I think it is fair to say that China does have this strong belief in manifest destiny. It does see itself as one of the world's great powers. It also has basically com combined this unusual mix of authoritarian capitalism uh, with basically state planning. Uh, so it actually has a, a command economy in many ways. It's a, it's a hybrid. At the moment, leaving aside all the issues of human rights, uh, many problems of a social nature in China, it is proving to be a very resilient country which continues to grow rapidly. And it won't be too many years before it is the world's leading economic power. Now, as such, it sees itself fulfilling uh, this historic destiny, this manifest destiny. And I think this is pretty strong in Chinese culture. And for heaven's sake, Britain really thought it had manifest destiny, what, 120 years ago. It's never got over the fact that it doesn't. But China mm, is a Despite being a very sort of small maritime power, in a sense. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we still believe we're a great power. I mean, we're like the French, the two countries famously that have delusions of post-imperial grandeur, which are boosted by being nuclear weapon states and, and part of the P5. But the central thing is that China um, basically has that capacity to do it. And you see it with the, the Belt and Road Initiative. You see it with the many investments in, in sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America and the rest. And you see it in so many different ways that it is reaching out, not in a traditional colonial or neocolonial way, but certainly reaching out. I think one of the most interesting markers over the next year will be what China does in Afghanistan. Whether, mm. in fact, you know, the Wakhan Corridor is used to, to produce a really strong physical connection, literally, you know, a highway between the countries. And that is possible. Uh, and the Chinese, of course, would want to have a lot of influence in, influence in Afghanistan because that would now allow them to enable to insist that the Taliban brought under control uh, basically the, the, those dissidents, particularly the Islamists from Western China, who basically present China with a major problem. So, I mean, essentially, I think uh, you're seeing a situation in which China is at the point of deciding whether to go that road as well. But China has expanded its military hugely over the last few years. This idea that it has the world's largest navy is balderdash because it depends entirely on how you mention things. And you see, yes, the United States has got 11 aircraft carriers. But it's got another 10 or so in the U.S. Marine Corps, which by any stretch of the imagination are aircraft carriers. So we're getting that coming through. One shouldn't underestimate that one of the big changes in the world is the coming of China as a great power. And in many ways, I think the problems that you have in the EU is a division between some countries that basically are worried about that per se and others which say, yes, it is a concern. It is a new thing. You have to deal with it by a process of engagement. You can't do it by basically going for a new arms race. And to some extent, I think the French take those views. I'm pretty sure the Germans do as well. But it's a further complication at the present time. And what about you, David? What's your what's your view regarding the way the deal is being discussed in wholly uh, defensive terms and with regard to China's actions vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and, and the South China Sea? Yeah, I mean, there's been a whole round of editorials saying that this is all down to uh, Chinese belligerence and that Australia really had no choice but to beef up its, um, its, its capacity to respond militarily to China. Look, the, I mean, the specific issues that are in play here, Taiwan, South China Sea, I think... I think everyone's familiar, you know, with the dynamics that, um, you know, growing China resents being bound to a, um, you know, an Asia that is shaped by a you know, security system that was um, constructed by the US um, at a time when China was on its knees 
economically, politically. I think that the fact that America has openly shifted away from a, a policy of engagement to great power competition means that, of course, that, that military presence in East Asia is something that, that makes China more nervous than it might otherwise be. And China obviously is reacting in pretty predictable way in attempting to deny access to the South China Sea, being able to lock down its um, maritime approaches in, in case of conflict. <laughs> These are exactly the sort of objectives that Australia enunciates when it talks about um, acquiring this um, the submarine technology and so on. So we're in the middle of a fairly typical great power rivalry. I think, I think though, from an Australian point of view, you know, there's something specific to be said because none of what is going on up in up in East Asia is a, is a threat to Australia in any in any conventional sense. What it does threaten, though, is you know the lasting dominance of of America in, in that region. And Australia, ever since colonization, has tried to act on that that region uh, in conjunction with a more powerful imperial uh, patron, first Britain and, and the United States. And so the possibility that America's presence in Asia might diminish, well, that entails a, a diminished US interest in, in Australia and ultimately a sort of a, an attenuation of the alliance. And, and I think ultimately these are the kinds of things that Australia is responding to. So I see this deal not, the significance is not so much the specific weaponry or so on. I mean, let, let's face it, the, mm, the yeah. submarines are not going to be built until 2040. 2040 is not the timeline that American and Australian hawks are, are working with. Yes, and, and the, the Australian Navy is not going to tilt the balance of forces. No, indeed, indeed. It's really of no strategic significance. But from an Australian point of view, what it provides, in a little bit of the same way that ANZUS is on paper not a significant treaty, but these things provide a framework for Australia to continue to, uh, to lobby for the kinds of objectives that it it's pursuing to um, to anchor an American military presence uh, in Australia. I mean, it hasn't received as much attention, but there have been uh, there has been talk recently of beefing up the American troop presence in Australia. I think it's quite likely that part of this deal is going to involve more American warships or submarines um, spending time in Australian ports. I actually think those those sorts of things are more significant in thinking about the dynamics. It's really for Australia, it's about demonstrating Australia's relevance to America's interests. Yeah, and well, therefore, something we're familiar with here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think we're, there's probably similar dynamics yeah. uh, at, uh, at work. And, and you can see, I mean, it's not an easy thing. I mean, America is a country that gets distracted quite easily. That was sort of symbolized by the way that Joe Biden seemed to forget the name of the Australian prime minister um (laughs) for australia this is a you know this is a massive earth-shaking deal um but it's it's you know it's probably one of just a number of things that biden had on his agenda that day and the risk is of course for australia that uh, you know america's presence in asia is more important for australia at least from the you know the canberra hawkish point of view it's more important for australia than it is actually for america that's why australia has to play this kind of loud noisy provocative role to um to get noticed you've been listening to politics theory other a podcast from tribune magazine if you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other pto shows then please consider becoming a supporter you can get access to extended versions of pto episodes from three pounds a month and if you're outside the uk you can also now support the show in us dollars or euros
Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.